Welcome to Seize Your Midlife, the podcast exclusively for midlife women. I'm your host, Bree Schumacher. We are going to dive into all the things from health and hormones to beauty and wellness. We'll be asking the question, what's my midlife purpose? And what am I going to do with the rest of my life? We'll also be interviewing women who've taken leaps or made U-turns in midlife. This conversation is going to be engaging, sometimes educational, a little bit funny, and always real. It is my sincere hope that you find your midlife purpose and lead your most fulfilling life. So join us on this journey to seize your midlife. Let's go. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Seize Your Midlife. I am so incredibly grateful that you are here today for today's conversation. So my guest today and I go way back. We were actually cheerleaders together in high school, and we have not seen each other since. I think I mentioned before that my family moved from Illinois to Wisconsin, the middle of my junior year of high school. And so Laura, who is my guest today, and I have not seen each other since we were cheerleaders together junior year, but with the power of social media, we have been able to reconnect and stay connected. And I am so glad she is joining us today. So let me tell you a little bit about Laura. She is a mom, a sister, a lover of food, as am I, dance, music, laughter, and sunshine. Laura is the proud mom of three boys, also like me, and her days are spent keeping up with them and living her passion of empowering other women through pole fitness. Laura describes herself as a pole dancer, instructor, mom, doer of all things, and she loves God, family, dancing, and the sober life. So welcome to... Caesar Midlife, Laura. Hi. I am so glad you're here today. Thank you so much for having me. I couldn't be more excited to be here. Super fun. Okay, so as you know, my first question is always the same. How old are you? I am 46. <laughs> yep. We are the same age. So we are talking <laughs> about the middle of midlife, right? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay. And where are you right now? I'm at home um, in the suburbs of Chicago. Awesome. Yes. And that's where we met mm-hmm. so that everybody kind of knows suburbs of Chicago. Okay. So after Bennett, which is our high school that we went to, you end up going off to college to the University of Dayton and that's where you meet your husband, right? Yes. So going to UD was in a lot of ways, a very pivotal experience for me. Um, so it was the first time I was living uh, out from like under my parents' roof in a very fun and social setting. Um, so I met a lot of people that were going to become like the key characters in my story. So close friends, you know, the man I would marry. Um, I earned a bachelor's degree in business administration and um, I wound up, let's just say, minoring in being very, very social there. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> oh my gosh. And I think we can relate to that. Um, I was <laughs> thinking back on our college days and our 20s. So um, not long after you graduate from college, you end up getting married, right? You got married fairly young? Yes. Yes. Uh, I was like 24, actually. So very young. Mm-hmm. Baby. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. And it sounds like, you know, with your business degree and everything, you end up taking a pretty fast-paced, like high-powered advertising job, right? With Ace, is that correct? That is, yes. So my my second marketing job after college was at Ace Hardware and I coordinated their national advertising campaign. So it exposed me to a lot of travel as well as what it was like to work for a large corporation. Uh, and it was a lot. Uh, eventually, I moved to a smaller agency. Um, it was just as stressful, but it was just a much more supportive environment and a lot more, I would say, growth focused. And I actually wound up staying there for 15 years. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's a long time. I don't even yes. think you told me that when we talked before. That's yes. crazy. Oh my gosh. Okay. And I know you got married young, mm-hmm. but it sounds like you actually waited a little bit to have kids. So why was that? And tell me about what that that time was like when you were just like, what do they say? Dinks, dual income, no kids. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, that time was full of work travel, you know, and just really getting ahead in my career. Yeah. And so how long was it before you ended up having, you know, your first son? It was a good six, six to seven years, you know, and and actually with the first one, um, it took a little bit longer than, you know, I had planned to actually get pregnant and have him. So we had a couple of setbacks, but yeah, it was, it was like six or seven years before we actually had our first one. Which I love because I think if you are going to get married young, it's so nice to have that time where you can just have that, you know, freedom of not worrying about anyone but yourself right. and growing up and all of those things. So I, I love that you you took that time. But you end up going on and having two more boys. You end up having three boys. Join the three yes. boys mom club. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Which is so funny because just like you – you know, each time the baby was born, it was a boy. And that's just funny because I never imagined I would have three sons. Never. <laughs> oh my gosh. Me either. In fact, I think we briefly talked about this before, like all the pink furniture, all the yes. like girls' names, like all the things, especially when you're like super girly. And then it's like, oh gosh, another Wait. boy. <laughs> right. It's a boy. Okay. Here we go. I know. I always kind of think like, is anybody going to call me when I'm old? Like, is anybody going to visit me in the nursing home? Like, because you know, boys, they're just not as like communicative. I know. I know. Oh gosh. I know. Uh, We'll be together in the nursing home. I hope so because I am a little bit concerned. I'm like, no one is for sure going to call me. (laughs) My gosh. Okay. So getting back to your story. So I know at some point, you know, you're juggling this career and you have three boys, which we all know is a lot. You make the decision that you need to kind of take a step back from corporate America, right? Yeah. And and that decision was kind of also made for me. So basically each time I had a baby, I thought I would leave because I knew I could no longer operate at work the same level I'd been performing. 
And after number three, our company had been going through some big organizational changes. And my role had really changed. At that point, I was working part-time as a consultant. Um, I had actually planned to move from a marketing ops role to human resources. I was expecting to get a transfer to the HR department. And instead, uh, I got informed I was part of a layoff. And my 15-year tenure was over. So um, it was part me being ready to go, but also part me um, being, you know, told I was being let go. (laughs) So... Oh my gosh, Laura. And you know what? I think that's so interesting that you say like it was both. And I think sometimes it takes those those moments to like push us in the direction that we're meant to go, right? Like yes. where you maybe would have stuck it out because you had been I there would so have. long, right? Absolutely. I, I I never would have probably taken that step. I needed that push out. Oh my gosh, I can totally relate. I had had this awesome job working in international where I got to travel to all these different countries and everything, and it was such a great job. And then they quote unquote promoted me, which is mm-hmm. a big joke to a job selling plastic sheets where I was going to be in like Hormel plants in Minnesota. Oh. And I always feel so grateful for that because that's what made me take the leap to start my own business. And I feel like everyone's got that moment where you're like, oh, it's the bad thing. But if that bad thing never happened, I would have never taken the risk or gone to the next step or done whatever. So I think that's just like a good thing to take away from that. Like those moments always are like too hard, right? Yes. Yes. The best, worst thing that happens to you. Exactly. Yes. They lead. I think it was Aaron that said, you know, difficult roads lead to beautiful destinations. And I just, I always hang on to that because I think that's so great. So Okay, kind of thinking back to, you know, I know you said in your early college years and you were super social, super fun, all the things. And you kind of told me that even beyond that, that alcohol was a pretty big part of your life. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of your relationship with alcohol? Sure. So at an early age, I discovered I really enjoyed alcohol. And on top of that, I enjoyed enjoying alcohol. So what I mean by that is I liked how I felt when I drank and I liked chasing that feeling for as long as I could. So I never understood how or why people would want to have just one or why they would quit so early when there was still so much time to drink or it was still so early in the evening. I always wanted more. Because I was always able to function appropriately according to society. You know, for example, I got good grades. I always made it to class. I was successful at my job. I could take care of my kids. I never saw it as a problem. There's this false assumption that unless you're, you know, brown bagging it near passed out on the street somewhere, that you don't really have a drinking problem. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. I think... Most people who have this problem are masters of hiding it, and many of them, you know, they don't even recognize it in themselves. Laura, I think you are spot on on that, and I think this whole – and you'll have to tell me what you think, but I think about this mommy wine culture that's kind of developed, and I'm sure it was always there, right? But like social media has made it like – cool to be like, oh, you know, and I drink a bottle of wine and like mommy juice and all of these things. Like, how do you feel like that's contributed to people kind of getting to like a scary level of drinking before anybody really 
calls out that there's an issue. Well, Ed, that's such a great point because we we actually we have a society that doesn't just support using alcohol as a coping mechanism, but actually encourages it. Mm. And so when that happens, what we're we're actually doing is encouraging each other, especially as women, to not deal with things in a real and solid and healthy way, you know, and instead of saying, hey, I'm here for you. This is a hard situation. I'm going to help you get through it. We say to each other, oh, let me get you a glass of wine. You're so right. And when we do that, we're not doing each other service as women. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I just, I feel like that's gotten to be more and more over the years of that, just like, oh, you know, mom, I don't know. I just think that mommy Absolutely. wine culture, and it's something about, I don't know why, it's like the wine. Like somehow if you're drinking wine, you're like sophisticated and it can't become a problem oh, or something. I don't know. Absolutely. It, it does. And like I said, it's we have this culture that doesn't just support it. We actually encourage it. Yes. I think that's a good word to point out, encourage yeah. it. And I think you are 100% spot mm-hmm. on. So, okay. So obviously you're you're drinking, you love drinking, but you know, nobody, including you, kind of really thinks this is a serious problem. And then right. the pandemic hits. So tell me about like how your relationship with alcohol kind of amped up during that time, which I think, I mean, if you walked around and looked in people's recycling bins, I think a lot of people's alcohol use amped up during that time, right? Right. Absolutely. So the pandemic for me, it was like throwing gasoline on a burning fire. So I had already ignored some red flags that my drinking could be a problem. And once the pandemic hit, you know, the schools were closed. My work was shut down. Everybody was home. Alcohol was a main coping mechanism for me. It was also a pastime and it was everything in between. You know, I think we talked about the fact that if you were to get takeout, all of a sudden there were cocktails to go. I could go order food and get wine bottles for curbside pickup. It was everywhere and it was everything. And it got to a point for me where, you know, it was difficult for me to abstain for just even a few days a week. You know, I was planning my daily activities around when I could have my first drink of the day. I would think to myself, well, I better get my workout in the morning so that I can have drinks by 4.30. So, you know, that was, it was really um, difficult for me to manage my alcohol intake. It was really the perfect storm. Yeah. And I know you said there were some other just red flags, you know, that you, in retrospect, are like, yeah, those were there. What were some of those other things that you were like, that is probably not how most people handle their thoughts about drinking or their actual drinking? Absolutely. So things like, you know, I was always the one who drank the most or maybe not even drank the most, but I was always the one who became the most intoxicated. And I kind of used it for a while as my thing, you know, oh, I'm, it's just me. I'm the one who gets the most drunk. Things like, opening different bottles of wine. So I'd open up a bottle of white, I'd open up a bottle of red, and then I'd switch back and forth between the two. So there was no real evidence of the fact of how much I had drank. Mm. Things like not being really clear the next morning on 
gee, um, when did I put my kids to bed? Or did this one take a shower? Things like that. Yeah. So there were there were absolutely red flags there that looking back on it, I gave myself a pass, but they were very atypical behaviors. Yeah. And I think that in hearing that, a lot of us can think of like our most fun friend, right? Like the friend that you're like, oh my gosh, you always want him at the party and you want him at the dinner because they're the most fun friend. And it sounds like you were the most fun friend. But did your friends at any point be like, hey, Laura, this is like, this has gone to the next level or no, because that's kind of what everyone was doing. I think no, because I, I hit so well. I mean, again, you know, I'm opening different bottles, so no one really knows. And again, according to, you know, society's standards, I'm acting appropriately. You know, I'm the mom who's volunteering and, you know, I'm successful at my job and I'm raising my kids and, you know, I'm cultivating my yard and I have a garden. And so I just didn't, I didn't fit that brown bag stereotype. No one really suspected me. Yeah. And I think that that's probably, it's like, that's probably the problem, right? Like people, nobody's looking for it because you are, you, I mean, really like a functioning alcoholic, right? Exactly. Well, and it sounds like almost thriving. Like you're not just yes. functioning. You're actually on the surface, you're kind of killing it, right? Like you're you're a great mom. You're you're a gardener. You're doing your yeah. job. You're a good wife. You're all the things, right? So I know, you know, you always kind of hear from people who have any sort of addiction, whether it's gambling, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, that there is a rock bottom. There is that kind of defining moment where you're like, this has gone beyond being just like maybe like a little red flag to being like, this is a full-blown problem. So did you have a moment like that? Yes. So I have a great group of friends in my neighborhood and we have a lot of fun together. These people, they're they're capable of having a normal relationship with alcohol and they can um, enjoy drinks from time to time, uh, unlike me. So During the pandemic, one night in May of 2020, we were outside in my front yard, enjoying the weather, drinking, and I'd been up to my usual routine, which was a lot of wine. I would add tequila to Truly. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yes. And um, get myself beyond intoxicated. And at the end of the night, you know, pretty much everyone had packed up one by one and left. And um, my friend was getting ready to leave. And we were having a conversation. He stepped backward off of a curb and he lost his balance and he fell backward into the street and his head was the first thing to hit the ground. And as you can imagine, this caused serious head trauma. We, we didn't know it at the time, but his skull had been fractured. My immediate reaction was to freeze, um, followed by offering him a towel for the bleeding. Like that was the best my intoxicated state allowed me to do to save the life of my friend. Oh my gosh. And didn't you say he was like, was he convulsing or foaming at them? I don't know. I feel like you told me there was like just some really scary things. Yeah. So thankfully someone else rushed over and stabilized him because yes, he was seizing and he was choking. They called 911 and and that saved his life. Oh my God, Laura. So in that moment, obviously you are in a haze. Like you said, you're mm-hmm. here's your friend. I mean, maybe like on a way to death. I mean, it sounds yes, really, really 
scary and you're kind of foggy. And so yes. is it that night or is it in the morning when you wake up and you go, oh my God, this this is really bad? Like what? when was it that you came to and kind of said, holy crap, I have a problem? Well, so in the morning when we had found out, you know, all of us that, you know, he was in fact hospitalized with a fractured skull and he was in, you know, really bad shape. He had had a near death experience. Um, that night changed me forever. You know, I realized that there is no drink that's more important than someone's life. And I just, in that instance, I saw how precious life is. And I knew I could never allow myself to be compromised like that again, like end of story. Yeah. Never again. And I also realized like, I cannot control alcohol. It's always going to control me. And I had to completely remove it from my life. So how did you go about doing that? Like, did you get help? Like, what did you, what did you do? So at that time, again, we're still in the middle of COVID. Most medical facilities were emergency and COVID treatment only, you know, like AA groups weren't meeting. And if they were, it was online. I'm lucky because I was able to seek help and support from key people in my life that I knew were sober. These people are male, female, they're all ages and all different kinds. And, you know, there are people that I just happen to know. And I made the connection like, oh, I remember this person is sober and this person. And, you know, I believe they were put in my life for this reason. And, you know, they've grown along with me in my daily commitment to sobriety. So I literally started with my day one. I woke up the next day and I repeated it. And I truly have to look at my sobriety like day by day and live in the moment. There's days when I lay my head down on my pillow and at night, the best thing I can think of is like, thank God I didn't drink today. Oh, yes. I don't – do you know who Ed Milet is? I don't. Okay. You, you'll have to check him out and anyone listening will have to check him out too. He's like a, he's like a big thought leader. Um, okay. But he talks about how for the first 15 years of his life, his dad was an alcoholic and how unstable everything was. And then his dad went and got help. I mean, for many – you know, a lot of people, it takes them several times, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. But he – his dad said that his attitude was one more day. It was yes. one more day that I stayed yep. sober. And he never would – like he would say – he would never set a goal. Like I'm going to stay sober for two years. Right. He would just take every day and go one more day. Mm-hmm. And something else interesting that he said that would resonate with you was how this trickle effect of like, you know, you got help from somebody and then now you are helped, right? And you're yes. helping your kids and you will probably go on to help other people and how it's Me like too. this whole – trickle effect and you don't even realize like the power of the one person that starts that and like yes. just how it how it goes down. I just I loved that like visual of just like it trickling down and how, you know, it just takes one person to save yes. your life. Cause really, you know, that's that's what's happening. Your life is being saved, right? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. It is. <sighs> and and yes, and and there are people who I now, you know, just as people have helped me, I am in their life to help them and, you know, try to help them be successful with their commitment to sobriety as well. 
I love that. And Laura, I have to ask you this because I know you were saying like, you know, you have this group of friends, you have this group of neighbors, like yeah. everyone knew a certain Laura, right? Like mm-hmm. this was Laura, the the one that's had, drinking the wine and whatever. How has your relationship changed with your friends and your neighbors and how have people been receptive to the new you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So <laughs> they have accepted me 100%. So you know, when you're sober, there's no more hiding your emotions. So you like you're made to feel all the things: happiness, sadness, fear, regret, jealousy, anxiety. Like you name it, you know, because you can't pour a drink anymore to push them away. So just like we talked about the whole wine culture, and you know, mommy needs wine, or it's five o'clock somewhere, or you know, I'll need a drink after that meeting. You know, you can't do that anymore. And so you understand that your feelings are temporary. You feel them, you process them, and you move on. And so that obviously affects all of my relationships from the way I communicate to the way I make plans, the way I spend my time to like the way I deal with differences I have with people. And, you know, my friends and my family have been so understanding as to why my sobriety is so important to me and how it's really like the key to me living my best potential. Um, socially, I'm still like the same. So <laughs> I like to say I'm all the fun you remember with none of the alcohol. <laughs> I love that. And I think that that's something that people like should know because yeah. I, I do think, well, and I think back to even knowing you in high school, you always had the biggest smile and full of joy and full of life. And of course you are still that person probably without all the mess, right? Without all the mess. Yeah. Yeah. So I still hang out with my friends. I still go out. I, I'm at a point where I feel secure in my sobriety. Um, and a situation arises where like I'm not comfortable or if I don't think I'm setting myself up for success, I either will leave or I won't go. You know, there are certain places I won't go because I don't feel like it's a good idea for me to go to, you know, dinner at a wine bar. <laughs> Right, it's you know, too tempting. I'm, not, I'm probably not going to be successful there. Yeah, it's like a gambler going into a casino. Yeah, so you know, it's that's really how it works for me. Well, I'm so glad to hear that everybody's just like embraced you and that they you have. set your life up to be successful. Okay, so I know you told me that just six months into your sobriety, something really sad and tragic happens in your family. Yeah. Can you tell everyone what that was? I got a call one morning and it was from our local fire department. And they asked me if my dad had a DNR or do not resuscitate. My mom, she found him at home and he was non-responsive. So I live close by and I, I rushed over there, but my dad passed away that morning. Oh my gosh. And just out of the blue? Yeah. I mean, he was 75. Um, you know, he lived a, a good life. And, you know, obviously I knew my dad wasn't going to live forever, but yeah, he he passed away. It was not expected. Wow. I can't even imagine that call, especially like the fire department calling. That's like so... Oh, so yeah, it was devastating. It was a lot to say the least. Oh my gosh. You know, the good thing was that uh, my dad and I knew exactly how we felt about each other. In fact, 
unknowingly, like the last phone conversation we had, the last thing he said to me was, you always have my love and prayers. Wow. That like keeps me going. But yeah, it was, it was definitely a real, real devastating event for me. Gosh, and I think that what you just said about like we knew how we felt about each other, I think that that's such an important thing to grab onto. And I've heard before people say like we had nothing left to say to each other, meaning like all the things were said. Like we had said we Mm -hmm. love you. We had said like I'm proud of you. We have said all the things and just like to live your life and your relationships and say Mm -hmm. the things Mm -hmm. because you just never know, right? Like every day is a gift. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I am thinking about you newly sober, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're newly sober. You get this like shocking news. How did that affect you staying on track? Well, so that's the other piece of it is that my dad, he was like the biggest champion for my sobriety because he himself had been sober for decades before he died. So, you know, at that point, I was so happy that he saw me get sober and I cannot even imagine how bad my drinking would have gotten when he died. I just never wanted to undo any of that perfect progress. I love that. And I think that's so important because I think, you know, knowing like it was actually a gift that six months had gone by because who knows how bad or how dark or whatever things would have gotten if you still were using drinking as a clutch, right? Oh my gosh. I cannot even, yeah, I can't even imagine how destroyed I would have been. Yeah. So I I know, I know that he is still with me spiritually and I know that he is working things in my favor and working things for me to be successful. And yeah, so that, that keeps me going. I like that. And I think that that's really important to be like, he might not be here on this earth, but he is still championing for you. Like he is still cheering you on. And like, it's (laughs) part of probably what makes you be like, nope, I'm sticking to it. I'm sticking to it. So going to another part of your story. (laughs) So before you even got sober, Mm -hmm. you end up taking a pole exercise class. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Yes. And you said it like changed your life. So tell everybody a little bit about what that was like, that first class and how you found it and all the things. Yeah. So, so, you know, I missed having a career in three boys. I stayed an active runner because I just, I liked training for races and, you know, I needed a goal to keep me accountable and active like all of the time. And, you know, as I got closer to 40, my doctor told me that I needed to incorporate flexibility into my workouts, which I never did. I never was a stretch person, none Never liked yoga, anything like that, but I have scoliosis and I was having back problems. So I needed something to get my entire body moving. So I tried this pole class because, you know, I always loved dance and the class just intrigued me. It combined flexibility with dance, uh, strength moves, and it was in this beautiful boutique style studio that was for women only. And as you know, when you're a mom of three boys, like, feminine, women only, beautiful spaces are far and few between. 
<laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> okay, so I just have to ask because I've never I've never been to a pole class. I've never been in one of the studios or anything. But I think a lot of people listening, when they think of pole dancing, they think of like pole dancing sexy for a man, right? Like this is, you know, yes. at a strip club for a man. But that's like the opposite of what a pole exercise class is, right? Yes, that's I actually quite the opposite. So I've been an instructor now for three years and I've had probably hundreds of students. And what I'll say is they show up for themselves. So they're looking to either connect or like reconnect with themselves in a safe and private space. And, you know, dance movement is a very powerful outlet for emotion. And so they're there and they're using these classes to process things like stress, anxiety, they're building their self-confidence, they're learning to self-validate, celebrating what their bodies can do, you know, and then like developing the things that they want to gain more of. And like none of that has anything to do with men or any significant other. Right. And I, I mean, I've seen your videos and I'm like, holy core strength. Like, <laughs> you can hold your body sideways. Like that's pretty amazing, especially at 46, right? Like, wow. <laughs> well, it's funny because, you know, we've been wearing masks in our studio since, you know, the pandemic. And I really think a lot of my students have no idea how old I am. <laughs> hey, that's good. That means your body looks young, girl. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> they think that like I'm their age and I have a lot of students that, you know, I'll present them with something and they'll say, well, I'm too old to do that. <laughs> I'm thinking like, oh, honey. <laughs> so. Okay. So tell everyone, like, I know, you know, you take the first class, but how do you go from the first class to being like, I'm going to now be an instructor? Like what's the leap that happened right there? So, you know, I'm taking these classes and, you know, I'm, your progress just builds, right? Because again, with pole, the thing that I love about it is there's always an opportunity to celebrate what you can do. And there's always an opportunity to develop another skill or another thing. And, you know, in our studio, we have like the best hype crew you could imagine. So you come into our lobby, you're going to hear cheering, you're going to hear music and clapping, like we're always encouraging each other. And like, we're just always verbally, emotionally, like lifting each other up. So this is all happening while I'm taking these classes. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, gosh, like if I could just bottle this up and give this to more women, like that would be incredible. And, you know, around that time is when I left my company that I was at and I decided, you know what, I want to become an instructor. This is, this is what I want to do. I want to empower other women in the way that I have been empowered and the way that I see, you know, the other women in my classes growing and self-validating and just really flourishing. I mean, Laura, once a cheerleader, always a cheerleader, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I had to throw that in there. Yes. Oh my gosh. Okay. But what, in all seriousness, what do you think about it? I mean, obviously there's that like true cheerleading that's happening. Like you said, people are walking through the door and they're being celebrated Mm -hmm. and whatever. But what else about it do you think helps women gain so much confidence? It's because they, when they come into our studio, like they are weighed down, like they're wearing so many different hats, right? Their daughter, sister, parent, 
significant other, employee, neighbor, etc. And so like just for this hour and 20 minutes, they get to take off all of those hats and be themselves, like with no distraction. And in like that space and time, they learn to celebrate what their bodies can do. And I can tell you, like, you know, we have mirrors in the front of our studio and, you know, how wonderful it is to catch a glimpse of one of my students, like noticing like that, like, wow, they still like the way their legs look or, you know, hey, look at the muscles I'm getting in my arms. Or, you know, they may take their hair down and realize like, oh, wow, like I have nice hair, you know, so they learn to like appreciate themselves again. And then at the same time, they're making progress toward their goals. And like they're learning new things. And again, because of that, they learn to self validate, they're no longer relying on another person or their career or any other thing to help their confidence, their confidence is coming from within. And it's just so amazing. I love that. And do you feel like being part of this and being in that studio and teaching other women how to dance and reclaim themselves, has that helped you stay on the track to sobriety? I would say in some sense, yes, because I play a very, I would say, intimate role in their journey. And I do feel like in order for me to do that, I need to be my most clear conscious self. And so, you know, I think my being sober definitely helps with that. So yes. Yeah, that makes sense. And if somebody is listening and they're not in the suburbs of Chicago, which I'm guessing <laughs> that that's the case for a lot of people, where can they find out more about pole exercise? So there is a website. It's www.polepedia, so P-O-L-E-P-E-D-I-A.com. And they have a really good write-up on what to look for specifically in a good pole studio, as well as what qualifications to look for in an instructor. So there's definitely things that you want to make sure are in the physical studio space as well as the person who's guiding you in pole, you know, you want them to have certain qualifications. And then from there, they also have like a map which lists different pole studios in the United States. So that would be a good option. If anyone's also listening and they want to submit a question to Bree, she can get it to me. I'm, I'm always happy to make referrals if I have them. So that would be another option. Awesome. And I really hope that like there are women listening that go and like find a class. And if they yes. do, like write us and let us know because I, I want to hear because it just sounds so cool. I love it. Okay. So kind of thinking back, I want to circle back to um, your sobriety journey. So, you know, I think that there are probably many women right now that when you described your relationship with alcohol of kind of like you know, always wanting to be the one having the most drinks or staying out the latest or whatever, I think that they can hear themselves mm -hmm. in your story and in your description and your relationship with alcohol. What would you say to that woman right now that is hearing this and going, God, that sounds like me? Yeah. You know, I would say if you are at all feeling, you know, like you have red flags or any of this resonates with you, like you're not alone. Just like we talked about, we have a culture that doesn't just support alcohol, 
as a coping mechanism, but actually encourages it. So like take the opportunity, like look at your lifestyle, look at how alcohol is impacting it. You know, there's nothing alcohol makes you better at. So don't play with your potential. You know, the choices that we're making right now in our forties are going to show up for us in the next few decades. Like, you know, alcohol, like if you look at the studies from the CDC, it increases the risk of like health issues, you know, like your high blood pressure, stroke, heart disease, certain cancers. And like we, we want to make choices that are going to help us live our most healthy, full life, you know, for ourselves, also for like everyone who loves us, like consider maybe going dry for a certain amount of time to reset your body, your mind, make sure that you can control alcohol in your life and it doesn't control you. That would be my biggest thing. And if you need help making a permanent change, you know, if it is the fact that alcohol controls you, talk to your doctor about a program or therapy or plan that best fits you and your situation. Because like there's no one size fits all solution. I think a lot of times people assume that there has to be this one path or label or sentence or this or that, but that's really not the case. You can have a solution that's custom for you and you can have a really full, beautiful, sober life if that's what you need to do. Yeah. And Laura, while you were talking, I was thinking just, you know, like you said, go talk to the doctor or whatever. I just imagine, and I don't know if you felt like this, but I imagine that there are women that maybe they are struggling, but they feel ashamed or embarrassed to say, listen, this has become a problem. Like, what do you think about that piece of it? Yeah, I think that everyone struggles with something, you know, and having a struggle is just a symptom of a greater void, right? So whether you're choosing to fill it with alcohol or food or shopping or, you know, gambling or or whatever it is, right? You know, it's it's this addiction or addictive personality or something is always a symptom of something else. And, you know, pretty much everyone has a thing, right? <laughs> so, <Yes. laughs> so, you know, you're actually, you shouldn't be ashamed because you're A, self-aware enough to realize that you have an issue with something and that you want to make it better. You should be proud And so, you know, there's that. And then you should also look at it as, you know, something that you're doing for yourself, but also, you know, your loved ones. And you want to, people say all the time, like, oh, I would do anything for my kids or I would do anything for my family. Please do this. Absolutely. I can tell you as someone who did have a parent who was an alcoholic, it's not a good situation. (laughs) So if you can avoid putting your family through that, please do so. Yeah. And I think too, if if someone is kind of on the cusp, maybe they're just, you know, their drinking has gotten to be more extensive. I think, you know, it's really important to hear the things that you said, those, those tiny red flags so yeah. that people can take charge and do something before, you know, it's this brutal disease where you're, you know, having to get hospitalized or something, you know, I think right. just like be mindful. And I think you had some really good things to say about, you know, that this is an act of love for all the people you love in addition to the love of yourself and caring for yourself. It's the love and care you have for all the people in your life. 
Right. Well, and another thing that tends to be glossed over is that, you know, alcohol, just like any other drug, is a mind-altering substance, meaning that when you drink, you are altering the chemical composition of your brain. And the more you drink over time, the more your brain reacts differently to the alcohol. And so, you know, it's not necessarily a choice, right? As much as the fact that it's your brain chemistry and it's a physical reaction to what's happening. No different than if you were to be exposed to a virus and your body gets sick. So there's that whole aspect of it. So as far as like the shame is concerned, you know, it's again, it's a physical reaction that's happening. Um, Some of us genetically are more predisposed to it than others, just as genetically, some of us are predisposed to certain diseases and things, same difference. So, you know, we don't talk about that piece of it as much, but that is a very real aspect of it. And I think that is like such an important point that you just said, because I think that unless you have suffered from alcoholism yourself or you have someone close in your life, maybe you don't realize that it truly is a disease. Yes. Just the way that we're trying to educate people that mental illness is a disease. Exactly. Alcoholism is also a disease. And, you know, if somebody was going out and taking care of themselves to help their disease, we would, you know, celebrate them. And so we should think about alcoholism and, you know, treating your alcoholism and getting help for it with the same celebration. And like you said, not having shame, but instead being proud. And I think the more women like you that come out and say, listen, I wasn't like, you know, causing scenes. I wasn't, you know, no. you know, drinking out of a brown paper bag. And I had a problem. I think the more women that like you that come out and say that and say like, hey, listen, we need to put a kibosh to this mommy wine culture. Mm-hmm. And the more women that are going to come forward and have the strength to make a change in their lives. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate so much you sharing this journey of your sobriety. And, you know, when I think about everything that you've said today and your, you know, your journey, you've been through a lot. So how does this make you feel kind of staring down this next chapter, like this next stage of midlife? Yeah. I mean, I feel like more confident and authentic than I've ever felt. So, you know, my life is not perfect. It's never been perfect and it's not going to be perfect, but I feel like I've got the right mindset and I've got everything I need to handle the good and the bad. I'm ready. (laughs) I love that. And I know like you, when I talked to you before too, you were like, you know, I feel excited about like these, this next stage for myself. And it made me so happy to hear you say that because I think it's kind of the opposite of what a lot of other women in this time feel like. Like I think a lot of other women are kind of feeling a sense of dread, like not only getting old physically, but like, oh gosh, I don't know what's next for me or is this it? Or, you know, kind of all the questions that come up in midlife. And so what would you say to the woman that's listening right now that maybe feels a little bit less than enthusiastic, a little bit lackluster about midlife? Mm, life is just beginning. Like there are still so many beautiful chapters in our story. Like you have still so much to find inside yourself. Like reconnect with yourself. Like find those things that make you feel happy. And you just, you have to pursue them like your life depends on it because it does. 
It I does. Oh, you are so right. Like you – there's no time to waste. Like your life no. depends on it. You've got to step into your dreams and all the things like – oh. Those are such good words of wisdom. Thank you so much. And thanks for being here today, Laura. It was so good to talk to you. It was so good to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so wonderful. It really was. And I appreciate all your words of wisdom. And I want to say thank you to all of you for listening today. If you can so kindly tell a friend about the podcast, give it a five stars. Or better yet, give it a review. Those things help lead more women to find the podcast, which lead more women to this conversation. And the more women that join in on this conversation, the fuller it will be. Thank you so much, my friends. And I hope that you go out and chase your big dreams today.